Please be seated. <laughs> Please have a Bible open uh, at Job chapter 28. There is also an outline of the talk on the back of the order of service that you were given as you came in. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, do please help us to understand your word this morning. Help us to put it into practice in our lives that we may know the great treasure of your wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you, uh, or who do you picture when you think of a wise person? It's probably actually not a question that our culture asks all that much. We don't really value wisdom like some other cultures do. Uh, We value sporting prowess and fame and wealth and beauty and success, but we don't value wisdom quite so much. Be that as, as it may, though, who do you think of as wise? In some cultures, people think old people are wise. They think wisdom comes with experience. Grey hair is the sign of wisdom. That's not really the way our culture thinks, though, is it? We're so busy injecting ourselves with Botox and and dyeing our grey hair to get rid of it that uh, we're trying to look young. We don't value age. In some cultures, people think that spiritual gurus are wise, monks or priests or witch doctors or whatever. When we thought about this in Bible study, somebody mentioned Yoda as being wise from Star Wars. And... uh, Maybe there is a little bit of mystique about Eastern mysticism, Eastern spirituality in our culture, like people would say the Dalai Lama or someone like that is wise. But for the most part in our culture, people think that priests and spiritual leaders are are idiots, basically. That's certainly the way they're portrayed in the media consistently. People are even a bit sceptical about professors and scholars when it comes to the areas of uh, arts and philosophy. We don't really value that kind of knowledge as being wisdom. We think it's ivory tower, head in the clouds, irrelevant sort of stuff. I think for most people in our culture, if if they had to picture a wise person for you, they would picture a scientist. Give someone a a white coat and a microscope and we think they know what they're on about. Uh, For our culture, the classic wise person is Julius Sumner Miller with his hair out everywhere or uh, Karl Krizelnicki, his successor. They know why it is so. Uh, They know what makes things tick. They know how things work. And so these are the sort of people that we wheel out when times are tough. Uh, When the tsunami hits, we get Karl Krizelnicki onto the TV. He gives us some pictures and diagrams about how earthquakes work and how they cause tsunamis, and we all nod, as if now we understand. Who do you think of as wise Today we come to Job chapter 28, a key chapter, in fact, in many ways the key chapter of the book of Job, a chapter, a poem about wisdom. Let's get ourselves back into context. In chapters 1 to 2, do you remember we met Job, a godly and righteous man? But because of a dispute in heaven, Job loses everything, he suffers terribly. And then for the last 25 chapters, Job and his friends have been talking round and round and round in circles, trying to understand why Job is suffering so much, trying to 
bring some wisdom to bear on this matter. For Job's friends, the equation is simple. God is just. Therefore, Job, they argue, God wouldn't cause you to suffer if you hadn't sinned. God has caused you to suffer, therefore, you must have sinned. But Job keeps on denying it. He keeps protesting his innocence and gradually things get crankier and crankier and crankier as the speeches go on and on and on. By the end, Job's friend Bildad has called him a maggot and a worm. And Job has told his friends, look, there's not one wise person among you. At this point in Job, we've come to a bit of a stalemate. As one commentator puts it, the debate is done. Nothing is settled. The wit of men is exhausted And God is still silent. And it's here, at this point, that the author inserts this poem. The poem begins by talking about how clever people are, about human ingenuity. The author uses the example of mining. I thought it was quite neat that we had a miner reading those first uh, verses this morning, you know, mining for minerals in the earth. Look with me at Job chapter 28 and verse 1. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth. Copper is smelted from ore. So there's our example, mining. Miners are really clever. That's the point. Even thousands of years ago, they were really clever. Just just think about the amazing things that miners do. They go down into the deep, dark underground and they light it up like day. They cut holes into the ground. They dangle and they sway from ropes to get down. And with extraordinary agility, they search for treasure. Verse 3, man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft. In places forgotten by the foot of man, far from men, he dangles and sways. Miners create a whole new underground world with their mines and out of this world, they extract what they want. Verse 5, The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. There's the example. You can see from mining that man is absolutely ingenious, resourceful, agile, brave. And the author goes on. As we saw in our children's talk, people might not have eyesight like an eagle. Uh, People might not be as strong as lions but you don't see any eagles or any lions down in those mines. They don't find the treasure like man does, verse 7. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's heart has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it and no lion prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. Man is ingenious. But the thing is this. It doesn't matter how deep man digs, we can't find wisdom. Verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. Man cannot find wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Job's been looking for. 
And we can't buy wisdom either. It doesn't matter what you're willing to pay, it's not available for sale. Verse 15. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Man might be ingenious. We might be great at finding minerals in the ground, but we can't seem to get hold of the sort of wisdom that Job needs. So where can wisdom be found? If man can't get hold of it, who can? And that brings us to the point of the poem. There is one who does have wisdom. There is one who sees everything. There is one who made everything. Men can't find wisdom, but God can. And so verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Death and destruction say, only a rumour of it has reached our ears. But see this. God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters... When he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. God has wisdom. And he hasn't just kept it all for himself. God has revealed to man how we can be wise. The way to be wise, and this is a little twist, is to be like Job was back at the beginning of the book. Way back in chapter 1 and verse 1, we saw that Job feared God and shunned evil. In other words, he loved and he served God. And he kept on loving and serving God, even when everything was taken away. He kept on loving and serving God purely because God is worthy of our love and service. And as far as God's concerned, that is as wise as you can get. You can't get any wiser than that. God says true wisdom is to fear him, and turn away from evil. Verse 28. And God said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. The way to be wise is to skip over chapters 3 to 27 and go back to Job in, verses, in chapters 1 to 2. True wisdom is to love and serve God purely because of who he is, even if he does take everything away. So do you see the point? Of chapter 28. Man is ingenious, but man can't find wisdom. Only God has wisdom. And the fundamental thing that God has revealed to us is that we should fear Him and turn away from evil. And so the message of the poem is the message of the kids', kids talk wise people trust and obey God. Wise people trust and obey God. Well, it all sounds fairly simple. There's actually a lot to be said for this chapter. But what I want to do is, is just limit us this morning to three implications, three implications of this chapter. Implication number one. This chapter confirms our analysis of chapters 1 to 27 last week. 
Last week, you remember, we contrasted God's wisdom in chapters 1 to 2 with the human wisdom of chapters 3 to 27. And we saw that uh, human wisdom is long-winded and confusing and repetitive and wrong. But God's wisdom is clear and true. And we concluded the author's trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell us, go for God's wisdom and not human wisdom. This poem is saying the same thing, isn't it? Man might be clever... If you want gold, that's good. Uh, man is, is a good place to, to go. But, but man can't find true wisdom. Only God has true wisdom. And so the application for us is the same as we saw last week. We ought to treasure God's wisdom. We need to look to Jesus and to his word for wisdom. We should be opening up the Bible in all our circumstances, not just in church, but day by day, at home in our marriages, with our children, when we offer hospitality. We shouldn't be ashamed of God's wisdom because it's the only place you're going to find it. God has given us his wisdom, the wisdom that we need to get through this life, the wisdom that we need to deal with suffering, the wisdom that we need to bring us to eternal life. It is a great treasure that we have in God's wisdom and so we should treasure it. That's implication number one. Implication number two is this. Chapter 28 gives us some helpful clues about how to handle suffering wisely. On the one hand, this chapter reveals to us that we do not have all the answers. In the case of Job himself, we have the answer, don't we? We know exactly why Job is suffering. We've been into heaven. We've been told why Job is suffering. But that's not what normally happens in our lives. You don't normally get to pop your head into heaven and ask, why am I suffering? And so the first step to handling suffering wisely is to know what we don't know, or or more than what we don't know, it's to know what we cannot know. We need to realise and accept, with humility, that some things are just not available for us to know here on earth. In most circumstances, we simply do not know why we are suffering, God hasn't told us. And so there's no point torturing ourselves with the why questions. Why me? Why am I suffering? Why would God do this to me? And there's no point trying to invent answers as to why we're suffering. You don't want to be like Job's friends. You don't want to say to yourself or to other people, you're suffering so you must have sinned. And you don't want to come up with any... uh, other reasons why people might be suffering either. You don't want to invent reasons, you just don't know. Most of the time, it's not available to us to know why we are suffering. We don't know what God is doing. The book of Job tells us that we don't know. And so we're better off admitting that we don't know. But then on the other hand, this chapter reveals that we do have very significant and helpful information from God himself. God has given us what we need to handle suffering wisely. Now, we don't know exactly when Job lived, but he lived at a time when God had revealed enough for Job to know that he should fear God and shun evil, even if he suffered, even if he lost everything. So, for example, Job realised that God had given him everything, That's why he was able to say in chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
That's why he could say in chapter 2, verse 10, to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job didn't know why he was suffering, but Job had sufficient information to know that God can be trusted. And so Job had what he needed to handle his suffering wisely in a way that was pleasing to God. And of course, we've got much more of God's wisdom than Job ever had, don't we? On this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we've got far greater revelation from God. We've got far more reason to know that our God is worthy of our trust and obedience. That our God is worthy even if he takes everything away. We know for sure that God loves us. Job cries out in those chapters 3 to 27, I I just wish I knew that God loves me. But we know. We know because he gave his only son to die for us. We know for sure that God is just and holy. That's why he ensured that sin was fully dealt with in Jesus, fully paid for. We should never say like Job did, that God has wronged us or God is unjust. God has fully and finally proved his justice in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also know that God can empathise with us in our suffering. God himself has suffered. The father has suffered the loss of his son. The son has suffered under the curse of his father. God is not distant and uninterested. God has been here. He's entered our world and suffered with us. And we know that God is using even the worst things that happen for our ultimate good. He proved that in Christ as well, didn't he? He took the worst crime ever committed, the murder of Jesus, and he turned it into the greatest good that has ever been achieved, the salvation of his people. And God now promises that in all things he is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In the message about Jesus, we've got far greater revelation than Job had. We can see so clearly that God is loving and holy and just and gracious and wise and powerful. We can see so clearly that God is worthy of our love and our trust. We see so clearly that in all circumstances, we should keep on relying on Jesus. And that's all the wisdom we need. That is the wisdom that can bring us through this life. That is the wisdom that can bring us into eternal life. I heard a pastor the other day talking about a situation that he faced. A couple came to him. They were in their late 30s, three little children. They came to him and they came to him to ask him how they could get their relationship with God back on track. And then they told him the reason. The wife had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She'd been given three months to live. Uh, The pastor explained the good news about Jesus to them, told them how they could get their relationship with God back on track, and then he booked them in for an appointment a few days, about a week or so down the track. Three days later, the husband was killed in an aeroplane crash. The pastor had to go and visit the wife. Her husband was dead. She had three months to live and no idea what would happen to her little children. 
What would you have said? What would you have said? Well, as it happened, the pastor had been studying Job. And so this was the approach that he took. I'm giving a brief summary, but this is basically what he said. He said, look, I'm really sorry, I've got no idea why this has happened to you. I I can't tell you why you are suffering like this. But I can tell you this. God loves you. And if you trust in Jesus, there is hope and a future for you. The lady became a Christian. She put her trust in Jesus. The church helped her greatly in her last months and they've played a key role in making sure the children are properly cared for. Now this is a tragedy. There is no doubt about it. It's a tragedy. You can make up some excuses for it. You can talk about their sin or you can say that God was teaching them or something. I think you're wrong. (laughs) It's a tragedy. We don't know the reason for it. But it's a tragedy that we can face with wisdom. Because Job teaches us what we can't know and what we can know. We can't know why things like this happen, but we can know God. And so we can know the wise way to respond. Wise people will keep trusting and serving God. And that leads to our final implication. This chapter shows us who really is wise. The person who is wise in God's eyes is the person who trusts him, who fears God and shuns evil. On this side of the cross, the person who trusts and obeys Jesus. Now notice, it's not so much about knowledge, is it? Uh, you You can be wise without necessarily knowing everything. That's true in lots of areas, isn't it? I've got no idea how electricity works, but I can still use electricity wisely. Don't stick a knife in the PowerPoint, flick the switch on if you want on and off if you want off. Um, I've got no idea how a fax works. I can't understand how they can get the bit of paper to go through the wire. Um, But I can wisely use a fax. Press the phone number, press go. You don't have to know everything to be wise. It's the same when it comes to suffering. You don't have to know why you're suffering to handle your suffering with wisdom. You might have no idea why you're suffering, but if you're trusting in Jesus, you are handling it wisely. God is pleased with you. On the other hand, you might know exactly why you're suffering. You might call in Dr. Krizelnicki. He might explain to you every aspect of how an earthquake works and how it produces a tsunami. You might be able to pinpoint the exact reason for your suffering. But if you don't trust God in your suffering, you're a fool. The truly wise person may not know a whole lot, but the truly wise person knows God well enough to trust him. And so true wisdom is not about age. You can be as old as the hills and still a fool. Or equally, you can be young and beautiful and still be a fool. Fools come in all ages. And true wisdom isn't about being a spiritual guru. Time and time again when I was at Bible college, I read the work of people who knew heaps about the Bible and theology. They could quote to you books of the Bible in Greek, but they did not have a personal faith in Jesus. And so according to Job chapter 28, they are fools. My little four-year-old who can say, trust God and Jesus is wiser. 
And true wisdom isn't about having lots of knowledge about arts or philosophy or science or whatever. You can be the greatest scientist in the world, but as far as God's concerned, if you don't trust him, you're a fool. The truly wise person is the person who trusts God, who loves and serves Jesus. That's it. If you're doing that, as far as God is concerned, you're as wise as you can be. So that's the message of Job chapter 28. It's actually quite a helpful message, isn't it? A man may be ingenious, but we can't find true wisdom. Only God has it, and he's given it to you. True wisdom is to trust him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you that you are worthy of our trust. You have demonstrated your love and justice and perfection. You have demonstrated that you keep your promises. And we know that through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, that you will sustain and strengthen us, work in all things for our good, and finally bring us to everlasting life. Please help us in all things to trust you and to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.